This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, dear listeners. This is the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 8 past 5 on Sunday, the 15th of January 2023, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is a retrospective in education. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 27th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this exciting experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any potentially new listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach both languages and humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me daily on Twitter, at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. Today, I would like to focus on one topic that is very relevant to me as an educator and also in my daily life. This podcast will be on the topic of a retrospective in teaching and education. This is mostly relevant to potential educators in the English-speaking world, anyone who is already an educator in the English-speaking world, people thinking of joining the working teaching field, and also the curious and savvy. Please interact with me via Twitter or using the chat function. I always start my podcasts with a definition because I love words and I love etymology. So today we are going to look at the word retrospective. A retrospective is usually the act of looking back or dealing with past events and situations. So after almost a year of podcasting about education, I wanted to reflect on what podcasting does to my practice as a teacher and also on what another year in the profession has taught me. And I also want to look at the other side of the term retrospective, its other meaning. A retrospective in the arts field is an exhibition or a compilation showing the development of an artist's work over a period of time. Obviously, I'm not an artist. But I think good teaching can be akin to an art form. And also, it is interesting to see how we evolve as a teacher in our daily practice. Having experience informs the way we teach. My teaching obviously happens in a very specific context. It might be relevant to other teachers in Europe and beyond in the rest of the world, but it is definitely anchored in the area I work in. North London, in the state sector, 
And my experience can be very different from that of someone who works in the private sector or someone who works in a different country. Why did I devolve the whole podcast on this retrospective on education and teaching? Well, it is simple. I have a friend who is a um, writer. We met in a writing group. So uh, this is for adults only, and it is a fiction writing group. This friend of mine is a real person, by the way. Um, he is working in publishing at the moment for a very famous publishing house. He's focusing on crime fiction, not because it's his favorite type of writing, but because he was asked to do so. And he spends his daily working life reading manuscripts from very different writers. It seems like a dream job to me anyway, because I love fiction and I love reading. But after doing this for an, a year and a half, I think he's reaching a point where he wants a way out. And he's been looking at joining the teaching profession. So he's looking at other ways to study and get a degree to become a um, professional educator, which I find very interesting because I'm a teacher, a full-time teacher, and I also have this lovely hobby which is writing. And he is looking on the other way. He's thinking of maybe leaving his hobby, which is proofreading and editing, to go into the teaching profession. So I wanted to dedicate this podcast, podcast to my friend, and hopefully this will be helpful for him in his journey, possibly towards becoming an educator. But first, I have to remind you, as well as my friend, that this is a very contextualized vision of education and a situation that is definitely a British situation. So education in British terms. Well, if we look at facts and figures from 2021-2022, we have currently 9 million and 31 students who are in education in this country we have 24,454 schools. We have an average class size of 26.7. So it is not the most, the biggest classrooms. In some countries, I've been told in China and Africa, they have up to 50 or 60 students per classroom. But it is quite consequential when you have to deal with students who have di different and complex needs. And another indicator is that the number of children who are living on free school meals, which means in relative poverty, is 20.5%. So this is the student cohort that any potential teacher or any current teacher is facing. Now, the number of pupils in school in England has reached 9 million, which is a lot. It is a very good sign because it means that more people are getting education. Education is a gift, but it also, it's also a duty. And it's very good that the number is rising. So amongst these 9 million um, children, we have children who attend state-funded education and also independent schools. Now, 1.6 million infant children are recorded as taking a free school meal on census. So it means that some of these children are living in a state of poverty. 
And this has an impact on the way we educate and the way we teach. Education in England is compulsory for all children between the ages of five or four in Northern Ireland up to 16. After 16, children do not have to have an education. Obviously, if you decide to, you can also home educate your children, but you will have to give evidence that your children are receiving an education. So if we believe that education is compulsory and that is the truth by rule of law, it doesn't mean that all children go to school. And also in England since September 2010, all children aged three and four are entitled to 15 hours of free nursery education for 38 weeks of the year. The Early Years Foundation stage, EYFS, for those who like acronyms, came into force in September 2008. And this is a regulatory and quality framework about early education. So for children from the age of one to four. So nursery children, as we call them. If you've just arrived in the UK, you might not know, but nursery is from zero to five years old, infant school from five to seven or eight, key stage one, we call it. And then you have from junior, 11 or 12 years old, key stage two. And then after that, we go to secondary school, key stage three from year 11 to 12. So this is how it works as an institution. Now, most schools are mixed schools, but we also have either male or female um, non-mixed institutions. The last university that was an all-male and rejected women was St. Bennett's Hall in Oxford University, and they reluctantly agreed to accept women in 2016. But now it is still legal to have um, gender differentiated schools with only girls or only boys. We have a different structure than in other countries. Most state schools are divided into either they are local authority maintained and depend on the council where they are located, or they are free schools or uh, academies. They're publicly funded, but they're independent. And then we get another type of school, which is obviously private schools. So academies are basically state schools with greater freedoms and free schools as well. They include freedom from local authority control, the ability to set your own pay and conditions for staff, and also freedom around your curriculum, how you teach it, and how you choose your holiday, your holiday times and um, the school routine as well. The Academy's program was introduced first in March 2000 with the objective of replacing schools that had underperforming results. Now, we talked about private schools. Well, there's only 5.8% of children in the UK who go to school in a private school. So it is a very, very, very tiny minority. And yet they account for some of the um, most, the people who become journalists or who, have, who are MPs or who have 
high-powered jobs are usually the ones who've been to this independent sector. So when you start your journey to becoming a teacher, you need to know that you are not likely to end up in the independent sector because it's still a very small sector. You're more likely to end up in a state school with a different educational need than in a private school. Where you decide to teach carries a political impact. So it is not a choice devoid of meaning, whether you choose to become a teacher in a state school or in a private school. This freedom to choose leads to a democratic decision. In some countries, it is harder. You do not choose which school you're going to work at. For instance, France, it's a centralist system. You apply and then you get sent somewhere without a choice of location, school or a region even. Whereas in England, you apply directly to schools so you can decide where you want to work and for which school you want to work to. But as in France, if we look at the state of education in this country, in, in the UK, we do have a national teacher retention crisis. What does that mean? Well, it means that we do have teachers, they do train at university, they do their training, vocational training in schools, they do start working for a few years, and then if you look back, five years after they graduated as teachers, half of them are gone. They're gone from schools or gone from teaching students. What happens? Well, this creates a system where we find teachers, but maybe not as many as we need. So it is difficult to find new teachers. There are many reasons why this teacher retention issue is increasing. I'm not going to be able to explain them all today, but I would just want to make it clear so that any prospective teacher can decide, knowing that it's a, it is a profession that a lot of people leave after less than five years. When people tell me they want to become a teacher or when people talk about the experience of being a teacher, they often say that it's a very enriching career because we deal with human beings with children, and that it's great to see our work having a positive impact on their life. So I would say being a teacher is a work of influence. You do get to influence the next generation. And in that way, it feels empowered and powerful. So what is the proportion of influence we can link to the school's ethos or the actual teacher's good example compared to the influence that the family or the community have. Well, it's very difficult to quantify this. Every time we talk about human beings, it is not something that we can define as statistics or figures. But we can see that a positive teacher in a positive school environment can do wonders for students' behavior and engagement. You just need one head teacher to come into a school to change the school completely and dramatically, to change its culture, to change its ethos, to change the language of the school. So the, the quality of the teacher-student relationship is important, but it's also the quality of the head teacher, teacher and student relationships. As I mentioned before, 
it's uh, it, the education in the UK is not as centralized as in countries such as France, but it is still a centralized system as far as the content of education is concerned. So it means that we have institutions that are telling us exactly what we should cover in the year when we teach our students. We have the Department for Education and we also have an inspection board called Ofsted who is evaluating schools in order to see if a school is performing or not. So if you want to be a teacher or if you are a teacher, it's always good to check the um, content of the Department of Education website. You will find lots of documents that is actually very useful, such as this document, Behavior and Discipline in Schools, Guidance for Head Teachers and Staff, or Getting the Simple Things Right, Charlie Taylor's Behavior Checklist. And lastly, Checklist for School Leaders to Support Full Opening, Behavior and Attendance. This is very, very important because I think the first fear that we encounter when we, when we talk to EQTs, the people who are starting teaching in a classroom for the first time, their most common fear is, how am I gonna deal with 26 students? This is not an easy task, 26 people, particularly when they are teenagers. Imagine the mix of hormonal change and natural teenage angst, 26 of them. So this is a common fear. These Department of Education manuals and documents that are accessible for free online are very, very important to read because then you can see what you will be expected to achieve and what tools you will be given. Charlie Taylor used to be a part of the Department of Education. He was a chair of the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales in March 2017, and he is also um, he was also chief executive of the National College of Teaching and Leadership. He was a former head teacher, and he was the coalition government's expert advisor on behaviour in 2012. He also wrote a book called The Review of the Youth Justice System in England and Wales. So Charlie Taylor is specialising in behaviour. And when we talk about what would you have to do in the first times you spent in a classroom, behavior is going to be a very important tool. So please check out Charlie Taylor's writing because he advises simple things that are very useful for a teacher at any stage in their careers. Because whether you're considering teaching or you're already teaching or you've, had, you've got 20 years under your belt, sometimes it's nice to have a refresher. So, Charlie Taylor advises teachers to be consistent in their behavior and their behavior policy. He advises teachers to have simple ideas that they always follow through. Charlie Taylor is providing us with a checklist that I'm going to go through in a minute. And he encourages teachers to use a systematic reward and punishment system. So the carrot and the stick metaphorically, obviously. We're not advising the use of a stick in education anymore since 1994 in the UK, as the rule of law is concerned. So what does the behavior checklist for teachers mean? Well, Charlie Taylor advises any new teacher or even 
well-seasoned teacher to know the names and roles of any adults in the class, meet and greet pupils when they come in, display rules and ensure that everybody knows what they are, explain when there's a sanction and what happens, have a system in place to follow through with all sanctions, display rewards in the class and explain how they are given and allocated, follow through with your system at all times, have a visual timetable on the wall and follow the school behavior policy. So far, so good. Now, as far as the relationship with students, Charlie Taylor advises you to know the names of the children, have a plan for children who are likely to misbehave before this even happens, ensure other adults in the class use the same plan, understand pupils' special needs. And now as far as the teaching is concerned, but that's usually what you learn before you are faced with the students, make sure your resources are prepared, praise the positive behavior, praise children doing the right thing, make your um, resources accessible to all, stay calm, stay professional, and teach children basic class routines. And then lastly, as regard Regarding parents, Charlie Taylor advises to give feedback to parents about their child's behavior. So it all seems quite straightforward for anybody who would consider entering the profession. Just follow this simple routine checklist and you'll be fine. Well, I have to say I do follow this piece of advice daily and I think it's very sound advice there's a reason why it seems obvious, and that's because it works. Now, does it always work perfectly? Of course not, we're dealing with human beings, but there is something positive about this Department for Education um, resource, and it's that it's efficient and it does work. So a school behavior policy is an attempt to rationalize behavior in a school community, and it is a crucial part of the teacher's life. So I want to say to anyone who is considering entering the profession, but potentially my friend as well, I want to say, before you think about your subject, which is, are you gonna teach maths or art or English literature? You need to agree that a lot of your daily work is gonna be about behavior management and human interactions. If you're not interested in these two parts, human interaction and dealing with behavior, and you only want to focus on your subject knowledge, it's going to prove difficult to conciliate. Now, a lot of teachers seem to be struggling with behavior management at the moment. A lot of them are saying on social media, that it went worse because of the pandemic. I'm not so sure that things were rosy and easier before. The first time I, spent, I, I stepped into a classroom in this country was in 2004 in Bristol, Somerset. And I have to say, I was quite shocked at some of the behavior that some of the students displayed. And that was literally almost 20 years ago. So I wouldn't say behavior has gone worse. I would just say maybe we are less accepting of the behavior issues 
that we used to face 20 years ago. Maybe, and I'm sure COVID has made it worse, I know nurses and doctors and people who work with the public, general public, are saying that there's more aggression. It might be because of pent-up anger, frustration due to the lockdowns, or just general mental health uh, difficulties that people are experiencing. And that's fair enough. But it is definitely something we hear a lot when we talk about teacher retention. Now, the possible reasons that teachers are leaving the professions after five years into it might be that they are obviously finding dealing with, teacher, uh, dealing with students difficult. They might have a lack of support from their senior leadership team. They might also have uh, difficulty managing the workload. And they might also want to work more flexibly, work from home, and just have a bit more freedom in the way they teach. All these might be cumulative or cumulative reasons why teachers are leaving. I have to insist on the idea that there is a very clear structure of power in a school in the United Kingdom. It is a top to bottom structure. Decisions are made by the head teacher with the, the board of governors, and then it filters slowly down through a series of management position all the way down to the teachers. Rarely do ideas coming from the teachers go upward. In my experience, it is still a very traditional system of power. And this can be frustrating for young people who are considering the profession and who have this idea of a new way of teaching with maybe a more de democratic principle, with people being involved in decision-making and having students also more involved in decision-making. Be aware, if you're considering coming into the profession, that the structure is monolithic and traditional in a pyramid form. Now, teachers do have a lot of powers over their students. Legally, it is important to know that the teachers can discipline pupils at any time the pupil is in school or elsewhere under the charge of the teacher. Teacher can also discipline pupils with matters that happen outside of school. Teachers have a power to impose detention outside school hours. So we do have a lot of power. And some, some teachers are uncomfortable with this. And also legally in the UK, teachers can confiscate pupils' property. So there is definitely a lot of powers in the teacher's hands, even though they sometimes have a feeling that they do not have that much power. If we look at the dark side, of the teacher power, if you look at history, corporal punishment was prohibited in state education only in 1986, which means that we still have adults nowadays who used to be beaten up by or punished physically by their teachers. Now that's, that seems completely wrong and extremely uh, against human rights, but it was very recently that in private school, caning or corporate punishment was banned. 
If you look at the dates, in England and Wales, we had to wait till 1998. In Scotland, 2000, and in Northern Ireland, 2003. So we are quite shocked when we look back at these figures. And still now, teachers are protected with this concept of reasonable force. What does it mean? Well, it covers a broad range of actions used by most teachers if they have to be involved in a degree of physical contact with pupils. So it means that force can be used by a teacher against a student in the UK. But this force is to control or restrain. And it might be just making sure a student is not going to hurt someone or um, to separate a uh, break up a fight, for instance. And reasonable in the circumstances mean that you can't use force that is not needed. Well, this, this is where the law becomes subjective. What could you argue is needed um, force-wise in a fight, for instance, if you want to break up a fight? And what does controlling pupils mean in the context of a fight? Now, Restraint means to hold back physically or to bring a pupil under control. But depending on the situation you might be faced, you might have to restrain a child to the floor to protect this child's life. And this is not something to take lightly. I haven't been teaching in state schools for such a long time, less than five years. I'm still hanging on there. <laughs> so I'm part of the 50% of the teachers who are staying. Um, but I've had to restrain students already. So if you're a bit shy and if you are not so assertive physically, you might find it difficult. When there's two teenage boys fighting in a classroom, you can't just reason them. You need to step in between and stop them. And I, I know it does look scary. And most of the time, your senior men membership team would tell you to not get involved. But if you don't, it can escalate and people can get really, really hurt, including yourself. So I've had to break up fights. I didn't enjoy it. I was really stressed and shaken afterwards, but I was, I was feeling good about the fact that I stopped the fight because I thought at least no one got badly hurt. But this is not a pleasant part of the teaching profession. But I did think it was important to know for anyone considering working in the profession. Sometimes teachers go too far and we are very much aware of this. There was child Q case in 2020 when a child was, um, police was called to school and there was, um, without the consent of the child, the police looked for a prohibited item on the child's person. It's legal, and yet there was definitely a human rights outcry. People were really upset. So you have to be aware that there are legal uh, powers given to teachers, as well as legal responsibilities, and that you might have to use these powers even though you do not want to. I'll give you a quite dramatic experience example. You might not want to call the police in, in an order to search for a pro prohibited item, and you don't have to do that as a classroom teacher. But when there's a child who is in distress with a mental health episode, 
and you fear that this child is going to, for instance, throw themselves through the window, you might have to restrain that child physically. Without training and without knowing how to properly restrain a child. This is not what you will be taught at university. This is not what you'll be taught uh, in, a, in a training for teachers, but you might have to do it. So you need to take that into consideration when you become a teacher, when you are a teacher, and when you remain a teacher. Sometimes the situation makes you have to take a physical decision where you're going to have to hold a child and use force. It's unpleasant, but it's about safeguarding and protection at the end of the day. Serious subject, isn't it? Choosing a vocation. <laughs> I'm going to take a breath and I'm hope, hope, hoping you're going to enjoy the news. In the meantime, I'll see you after the news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Strike action dominates the news again, with a range of outlets reporting on disputes across England, Wales and Scotland. Whilst the NASUWT union reported 9 out of 10 teachers who voted in a ballot overpay voted in favour of strike action in England and Wales, the union also reported only a 42% turnout. This is below the threshold needed for lawful strike action. The union stated that whilst a strike would now not go ahead, the union remains in formal dispute with the government. The NEU is yet to release the results of its ballot and will also need to reach the 50% member turnout needed for lawful industrial action. In Scotland, the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association has warned of further strike action following walkouts by primary and secondary staff. It says it has no option unless the Scottish Government puts forward a suitable pay offer. The AIS Union and Scottish NASUWT members also aim to continue with strike action until an agreement is reached. Scottish Education Secretary Shirley-Ann Somerville maintains that the demand for a 10% pay rise continues to be unaffordable. Meanwhile, the University and College Union has announced 15 new strike days planned across 150 UK universities in February and March. It has said that a pay offer worth between 4 and 5% made during recent talks is not enough, although the group representing university employers says that the offer is actually worth up to 7%. This comes after the government announced that tuition fees in England will be frozen for another two years. Although this is good news for students, the strikes mean more disruption to courses already affected by the pandemic. However, the National Union of Students has been broadly supportive of the industrial action, at least so far. Away from strike action, there have been further stories focusing on what should be taught in schools. This time the focus is on educating pupils in the dangers of social media in spreading messages that are misogynistic and deeply toxic. 
The HuffPost website reports on Labour MP Alex Davy-Jones, who called in Parliament for ministers to do more to stamp out Andrew Tate-style misogyny and to stop boys being brainwashed. The MP asked what was being done to tackle radicalisation of young men. But PM Rishi Sunak responded that he was proud that this government launched the world-leading, world-first online safety bill. He also made reference to the autumn statement announcement of £2 billion of extra funding to schools. Although he did not respond with any direct reference to Tate, the online safety bill is expected to complete its final stages in the Commons shortly, before heading to the House of Lords. New figures released recently show that school absences in December were almost double the annual rate and that this was due to illness. The absence rate, as reported in the Evening Standard, was 14.3% across state schools in the week beginning December the 12th, an increase from 7.8% across the year. The Department for Education in England said the increase was due to a rise in sick days as a result of winter illnesses such as flu, as well as COVID-19 and strep A infections such as scarlet fever. In the Channel Island of Jersey, BBC News reports that the government has brought in 11 UK supply teachers to cover for absent staff. The short-term and long-term measures have been put in place due to staffing shortages and the supply teachers will cover for up to two terms. Short-term housing has been organised for those travelling to the island. The Jersey government said the current vacancy rate for Jersey was 4.3% but that the long-term plan was to train, recruit, retain and upskill school staff. Finally, the Meanwhile in the Middle East section of the CNN website reports on the United Arab Emirates' plan to become the first Arab nation to teach about the Holocaust in its schools. The move has been praised by some and criticised by others. The nation revealed its plans in a recent tweet and intends to include Holocaust education in both primary and secondary schools. The UAE says it will work with Tel Aviv and Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem, to help build the new curriculum. Whilst many see the move as part of the normalisation of relations with Israel, critics suggest that it does not reflect all of those living in the UAE, with many disagreeing with this policy. Full details of the story can be found on the CNN website, with comments on both sides explored in detail. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, let's start the new year with investigating the power of artificial intelligence in education. A lot of people are asking, does your school block chat GPT? First of all, what is it? Chat Generative Pre-trained Transformer, or GPT for short, is a piece of software designed to mimic talking to a person. The difference is, this person is super clever, and it's been trained by thousands of conversations in the past, and it remembers them all. There are lots of chatbots out there. GPT is popular with young people as the answers it gives are not only correct, but can be slightly different each time, so it's more difficult for a teacher to spot a copy and paste homework. Let's put it to the test with a couple of school questions. I'm using a screen reader to represent ChatGPT to give it a voice. Responses are usually in text and appear as if they're being typed really quickly. I asked, what are the registers in a processor? And I got... Registers are a type of memory that is built into the central processing unit. 
CPU of a computer. They are used to store data and instructions that the CPU needs to access quickly in order to perform its functions. There are different types of registers, each with a specific purpose. For example, the instruction register stores the current instruction that the CPU is executing, while the program counter register stores the address of the next instruction to be executed. I'll stop GPT there as three paragraphs were given in this answer, and it's only a one or two mark question. So I asked, can you tell me in two sentences? And I got... Registers are small, high-speed memory units built into the central processing unit, CPU, of a computer that are used to store data and instructions. They allow the CPU to access and manipulate data and instructions quickly, enabling it to carry out complex tasks at high speeds. Well, thank you, GPT. That's much more to the point. Powerful, right? How about, can you summarise Of Mice and Men? Of Mice and Men is a novella by John Steinbeck, published in 1937. It tells the story of George Milton and Lenny Small, two displaced migrant ranch workers during the Great Depression in California. Despite their apparent differences, the two men are deeply bonded and rely on each other for companionship and support. The novella ends tragically when Lenny, a simple-minded man with a love for soft things, accidentally kills a ranch owner's wife while trying to touch a soft dress, and George is forced to make the difficult decision to euthanize Lenny before he can be punished for the crime. That's fantastic. However, there's some words in there that are quite big, and my teacher would be quite suspicious that I copied and pasted it. So I'll ask, can you summarise Of Mice and Men simply? Of Mice and Men is a story about two ranch workers, George and Lenny, who are travelling together and looking for work during the Great Depression. Lenny is a large, simple-minded man with a love for soft things, and George is his caretaker and protector. Despite their differences, the two men are deeply bonded and rely on each other for companionship and support. However, their relationship is ultimately tested when Lenny accidentally kills a ranch owner's wife, and George is forced to make a difficult decision to protect Lenny from the consequences of his actions. That's more like it. Now my homework's done, I think I just bought myself some more time on my games console. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. We are back after the news, dear listeners. So, as I said, we are trying to convince or maybe suggest what entering the profession would do for my dear friend who is considering this. So, we talked about the fact that teachers have obviously certain rights and certain powers that they're expected to operate in a hierarchical system that they will have different experiences depending on the school they work at, whether it's a private or state school, and that they will also have to deal with some serious behavior issues. Now, if they want to learn more, or if you want to learn more about how to manage behavior, you could just check on any online library and you will see many, many self-help books. So I'm not usually keen on advising Um, newly qualified teachers or aspiring teachers to spend their money on such literature. I think there's enough help on the Department for Education website. But to quote a few famous figures, very controversial ones as well, you have um, Catherine Birbal Singh with her Michaela Community School in Wembley. You have Doug Lemoff, the American writer of Teach Like a Champion, who is very, very famous for a lot of male teachers, I noticed. We have Dylan Williams, who is a British professor and he had a show on TV. Lots and lots of people who have experience in the classroom and have developed their own techniques. Now, I would only trust advice coming from someone who is still teaching in a classroom. As a rule, I think you can only really practice what you preach. So definitely, you don't need to spend money on buying these self-help books. Just use what's already available online. What matters is that whatever you choose to use as a rule, you should apply it every day, whether you're feeling great or feeling tired, 
your system of rules needs to be consistently applied. Now, I don't want to scare newly qualified teachers, but if you want to look at headline exclusions, there isn't that much, but they are for very big reasons. So permanent exclusion rate is 0.06 in 2020, um, figures for England only. There's been 5,057 permanent exclusions in 2019-2020. But if you look at suspensions, which is for a few days of school, you have 310,733. So it's a lot of students, it's a lot of teachers who had to deal with difficult behavior, and it is the reality of teaching in a school. The reasons given for being suspended or excluded are bullying, damage to property, drug and alcohol related, persistent disruptive behavior, physical assault against another pupil, physical assault against an adult, racist and sexual misconduct, racist abuse and sexual misconduct. So when you are passionate about subject, let's say English or maths, you do not always understand how much you're going to have to deal with human behavior and very difficult issues such as safeguarding, but also British values of rule of law, democratic principles, freedom of speech. This is a very difficult part of being a teacher, dealing with the legality and the psychological difficulty of human interactions. So if we explore data, we see a decrease in a number of exclusions. We see an increase of exclusions in primary school. And the majority of exclusions are still for persistent disruptive behavior, which means some teachers have had to deal with that for a long time. Persistent is over months, let alone sometimes years. So this is the reality if you want to join the profession. You are going to have to deal with disruptive behavior. And sadly, when you see who is excluded, uh, people who are excluded are usually children who live in poverty, free school meals, children who have educational needs, and often more by ethnicity, we see a higher number of gypsy or Roma or traveler students, followed by mixed white and black Caribbean, and then um, we have traveler and Irish heritage students who are suspended and excluded more than other student cohort by ethnicity. So sadly, when you're a teacher, you will have to deal with the difficulties that society as a level is encountering. And you will have to deal with racism. You will have to deal with um, disabilities that are not maybe always taken into account. And you will have to deal with poverty on a daily basis. This is not something that you can solve on your own as a teacher. And it can be very frustrating to witness and let alone confront on a daily basis. Our schools are facing children who have complex needs and we do not have neither the training nor the resources to cater for these children, let's be honest. But I don't want to depress you too much. So I still want you to have a feel good about the profession because I mean, at the end of the day, I go to work and I'm happy to go from Monday to Saturday. So if I enjoy it, why wouldn't you enjoy it as well? There's some good feel-good movies out there. 
My One of my favorites that I'm quoting, and I advise you to have a look at them if you haven't watched them, and if you've watched them, watch them again. Dead Poet Society, 1989. Dangerous Minds, 1995. School of Rock, 2003. And if you're a French speaker or a Francophile, Être et Avoir, To Be and To Have, from 2002. These are quite iconic, successful movies that show the beauty and the difficulty of teaching children. There's a lot of research that's been published about childhood conduct problems. Um, I can, I've, I had a look at David Ferguson, Joseph Bowden and Harleen Haynes writing, and I'm going to quote, the nature and quality of the young person's peer relationships also play an important role in shaping behavior. Peer influence is particularly important during adolescence. So when you're a teacher, you're going to face children who are very tribal. They really, really need peer relationships and it might be difficult to deal with, let alone when you add a toxic layer of exam-obsessed culture. And this is the other part that I want to focus on because I want anyone to step into the profession with a good toolbox and a good understanding of what being a teacher means in 2023 in the UK. In the UK, you have an exam-obsessed culture. Everything needs to be assessed in order to be measured, in order to be compared to what other students are doing. So this has a direct impact on morale and on mental health of teachers and also students and parents, I would say, as well. This has an impact on creativity. In the Robinson Report, published in 1999, uh, Kevin Robinson was an amazing um, speaker. He sadly died at the beginning of lockdown one in 2020. What a loss. But Ken, Ken Robinson, my apologies, not Kevin, Ken Robinson, described creativity as the most important aspect of teaching and he said it was endangered and under threat. A little bit like some of our important animal species our educational system is not taking good care of creativity. Imaginative activity fashioned so as to produce outcomes that are both original and of value is what's needed according to the late Ken Robinson. And all people have creative abilities and we all have them differently. When individuals find their creative strength, it can have an enormous impact on self-esteem and overall achievement. Yet, the educational system is too often stifling the students' creative abilities. And it's a frustrating thing to witness. Ken Robinson was a British author. He was born in 1950 and he died at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. He explained in many videos that you can watch online that According to him, school kill, schools kill creativity and we should do something about it before it's too late. So when you reach the classroom, your first worry is obviously to be able to deal with your class and your aim, because you are a good teacher and you want to do well, is to impart knowledge on your students, 
make them enthusiastic and motivated and make their lives, their learning journey and their lives better. But can you do it? And can you keep their creativity going? This is the ginormous task that teachers are facing every day. And you also need to be able to deal with the frustration of not succeeding as much as you would like to. It is difficult to keep creativity going with a very strict curriculum that imposes a lot of learning by rota in order to complete exams, in order to fill in the administrative boxes that the schools require. There's five-dimensional model of creativity that we need to take into account. Imagination, being inquisitive, being persistent, being collaborative, and being disciplined. And sometimes we forget that they are all as important as one another and they all work in conjunction with each other. You can't be creative effectively if you're not disciplined. And a, a lot of parents sometimes struggle with that fact. We can't be a good creator, we can't be a creative person if we're not self-disciplined. And we need to learn this as a skill. We can be creative, but we have to also be collaborative. Working with others is very important. If you want to work in films, in literature, in the arts, you are rarely a lone sculptor in your own studio. You have to work with others, so you need social skills. To be inquisitive, most children are inquisitive when they're little. Sadly, something happens to a lot of them in secondary school or in teenagehood. They lose that enthusiasm for discovering new things. As a teacher, you need to keep that light going. Being persistent, resilient, is also a mental health protection skill. So we need to teach our students to be persistent and consistent. And imaginative, most people are to different degrees, and you can work at it if you're not particularly imaginative. So what is the reality of classroom teaching? Well, it's quite a magical situation being in a classroom, I have to say. Very often, I would say it's like being on stage. And this might be because since COVID, we've had to revert to a quite old-fashioned way of teaching. Now, if we look at different teaching approaches, and we do a quick comparative studies, there's different way of teachings in every school and in all around the world. The most ancient one and the most caricatured one is called direct instruction. This is teacher-led. You have a teacher at the front, students together, and the teacher is giving out the knowledge, the methods, makes the students practice and drill and learn from his methods. He gives a step-by-step skill set, and then the students at the end should be able to reproduce what the teacher showed. This strategy does work well. This is why it's been used for so many years. However, it doesn't mean that it works well with our contemporary and modern students. There's another approach, which is called the indirect instruction. It's about making the student inquire, 
guess, problem solve, make decision and discover. It's mostly student-centered, but you need the teacher to be able to help them having methods enough, such as reflective discussion, concept, concept formation, problem solving, and it's a guided inquiry. Then there's another approach, which is, which is called the interactive instruction. That one relies heavily on students talking and sharing and working together. This is a group and maybe a smaller group um, way of educating. So you would have groups of students working together by pair or by triads or a group of four or five, and they have assignments to, to do. This implies that your students can see each other outside school and that your students have social skills that have been taught and sharpened enough that they are all going to work together and not just one is going to do the work. Then you have the experiential learning, which is learner-centered and activity-oriented. This is usually the education you get from certain private schools with very small classroom sizes where every child chooses what they want to learn, how they're going to learn, and the product that they're going to use uh, create at the end. Exper experiential learning makes children independent, responsible, and fully engaged. Students are usually very motivated and participate in the learning process. Obviously, this experiential learning is usually quite common in home education, and it's really difficult to put in place in an institution with a particular structure particularly that pyramid structure we talked about, which is the prerogative of most state schools. And then the last form of education, after talking about direct instruction, indirect instruction, interactive instruction, experiential learning, the last one is independent study, where it's a range of methods provided maybe by a teacher or also self-taught if the student is a home learner and uses tutorials, it's about self-reliance, self-improvement and student initiative. It implies that the student has a certain level of resilience, a certain maturity, and it won't fit all types of learners. This is all the types of education you can encounter in a human context. Now, if you look at a classroom in this in the United Kingdom, you're going to see a lot of direct instruction. Might, you might encounter some indirect instruction and at times when we do group work for certain subjects, maybe history, maybe food, DT, and maybe maths as well, you might have interactive instruction. I would be surprised if you ever witnessed experiential learning and independent study in a school context. Independent study doesn't mean you do homework on your own. It means that you are self-taught and it's your own decision to improve. So most of the time you still encounter direct instruction. Is it good? Is it bad? I'm not here to judge. I'm just trying to paint a picture 
or what of what education feels like and looks like when you are a prospective teacher or working in a profession. Now, if I look back on my own podcasting experience this last 11 months, I have to say doing this podcast is really, really helpful because it makes me reflect on my work and on how I do my work. And I can honestly say that a lot of my work as an MFL and humanities teacher is that old school method of teacher-directed learning. And that's why I often describe teaching as being on stage, because it's a bit like a TED talk. Very often you have you, the teacher, and you're trying to share knowledge that you've acquired through a lot of graft and hard work in your previous life as a student. And then you're going to try and add some of that indirect instruction and that interactive instruction. And by teaching that way, I'm hoping to impart those skills that are going to encourage my students to do experiential learning and independent study in their own time. Let me give you a clear example because I'm using big uh, theory words, am I not? Well, I've been teaching Neolithic Britain with my year seven and I showed them, obviously, when I, it was teacher-led, I showed them PowerPoint with activities. We talked about the Stone Age and the Bronze Age people and how hard their lives were and all the gestures they had to do on a daily basis, protecting the fire, maybe collecting berries, making tools, um, making sure they had enough food, all these very practical skills that we would not be able to do now um, if we were transplanted back in time. And with the help of an actor who came through, um, who came via the Barbican to help us, we also included interactive instruction by using drama in history. We asked our students to pretend they were um, nomads, that there were hunter-gatherers, and we act, act, we asked the students to do little scenes where they would reproduce cave painting, hunting, burial practices. They had a lot of fun acting. But because time is short in a classroom and I really want my students to develop their resilience and their independent study skills, I asked them to try and make a Stonehenge um, model. And I gave them lots of ideas. I told them they could use daily material they find in their house, such as, I don't know, recycling stuff, toilet paper rolls, bits of cardboards. And I said, just try and make a model. And I had such lovely homework pieces. Some people used block of cheese, biscuits, nail varnish. Um, they use um, nail varnish remover bottles. They used the most random objects they found in their house and tried to represent that circle, that sundial that is a Neolithic religious site. That was wonderful. So even though we are in a very rigid pyramidal structure with the pressure of exams, with complex needs that we can't always address because we 
to we're not psychologists we're not social workers and we don't have always time enough to give all the attention that these children crave we can still inspire them we can still show them how good they are and how clever they are and how creative they are by simple simple teaching ways and routines so please if you're considering coming into teaching i would definitely go against that little twitter poll i did today it was a very last minute thing i asked my followers on twitter to tell me if they would recommend starting teaching or not or if they would but for a short amount of time and out of the very short sample i think i got eight people answered my poll most of them said that they would not recommend teaching i'm gonna disagree with my lovely followers on twitter i think teaching is a great skill to have and to learn and to practice i know it is difficult a job in this current climate but i also think that if you are really strict if you apply that checklist of routine checklist that was on the department for education website if you find that school that is supportive enough that lets you try your best and try and experiment in your teaching practice if you create a strong bond with your students if the parents know you if they know you're strong but quiet and resilient fixture in the school you will be able to achieve a lot of very fulfilling um, aspect in your career i enjoy going to work i get tired i sometimes have psychosomatic symptoms because i'm overworked but i also am happy to go back to work after the holidays so please consider teaching the beauty of our lives nowadays in 2023 is that we don't do the same job forever and if you gave teaching a go and if you're in your third year after graduating and if you think it's too much or if you think it's not up to your expectations or if you have another idea you are free to leave and i know that that won't help the teacher retention crisis but it will at least have provided some students with a good teacher a freshly arrived teacher who was happy to try things out and if it doesn't work out it's okay but give it a go because you can only really enjoy a profession if you've experienced it and nowhere can you get that wealth of experience than in the classroom and i think teachers are highly skills skilled and their skills are highly transferable it's an amazing job it's a difficult job but it is definitely worth it let me tell you in two years when i've reached the five years deadline but so far so good so i'm gonna play the news and hope that this ending was cheerful enough thank you dear listeners this show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Strike action dominates the news again, with a range of outlets reporting on disputes across England, Wales and Scotland. Whilst the NASUWT union reported 9 out of 10 teachers who voted in a ballot overpay voted in favour of strike action in England and Wales, the union also reported only a 42% turnout. This is below the threshold needed for lawful strike action. The union stated that whilst a strike would now not go ahead, the union remains in formal dispute with the government. The NEU is yet to release the results of its ballot and will also need to reach the 50% member turnout needed for lawful industrial action. In Scotland, the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association has warned of further strike action following walkouts by primary and secondary staff. It says it has no option unless the Scottish Government puts forward a suitable pay offer. The AIS Union and Scottish NASUWT members also aim to continue with strike action until an agreement is reached. Scottish Education Secretary Shirley-Ann Somerville maintains that the demand for a 10% pay rise continues to be unaffordable. Meanwhile, the University and College Union has announced 15 new strike days planned across 150 UK universities in February and March. It has said that a pay offer worth between 4 and 5% made during recent talks is not enough, although the group representing university employers says that the offer is actually worth up to 7%. This comes after the government announced that tuition fees in England will be frozen for another two years. Although this is good news for students, the strikes mean more disruption to courses already affected by the pandemic. However, the National Union of Students has been broadly supportive of the industrial action, at least so far. Away from strike action, there have been further stories focusing on what should be taught in schools. This time the focus is on educating pupils in the dangers of social media in spreading messages that are misogynistic and deeply toxic. The HuffPost website reports on Labour MP Alex Davy-Jones who called in Parliament for ministers to do more to stamp out Andrew Tate-style misogyny and to stop boys being brainwashed. The MP asked what was being done to tackle radicalisation of young men. But PM Rishi Sunak responded that he was proud that this government launched the world-leading, world-first online safety bill. He also made reference to the autumn statement announcement of £2 billion of extra funding to schools. Although he did not respond with any direct reference to Tate, the online safety bill is expected to complete its final stages in the Commons shortly, before heading to the House of Lords. New figures released recently show that school absences in December were almost double the annual rate and that this was due to illness. The absence rate, as reported in the Evening Standard, was 14.3% across state schools in the week beginning December the 12th, an increase from 7.8% across the year. The Department for Education in England said the increase was due to a rise in sick days as a result of winter illnesses such as flu, as well as COVID-19 and strep A infections such as scarlet fever. In the Channel Island of Jersey, BBC News reports that the government has brought in 11 UK supply teachers to cover for absent staff. The short-term and long-term measures have been put in place due to staffing shortages and the supply teachers will cover for up to two terms. 
Short-term housing has been organised for those travelling to the island. The Jersey government said the current vacancy rate for Jersey was 4.3%, but that the long-term plan was to train, recruit, retain and upskill school staff. Finally, the Meanwhile in the Middle East section of the CNN website reports on the United Arab Emirates' plan to become the first Arab nation to teach about the Holocaust in its schools. The move has been praised by some and criticised by others. The nation revealed its plans in a recent tweet and intends to include Holocaust education in both primary and secondary schools. The UAE says it will work with Tel Aviv and Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem, to help build the new curriculum. Whilst many see the move as part of the normalisation of relations with Israel, critics suggest that it does not reflect all of those living in the UAE, with many disagreeing with this policy. Full details of the story can be found on the CNN website, with comments on both sides explored in detail. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, let's start the new year with investigating the power of artificial intelligence in education. A lot of people are asking, does your school block chat GPT? First of all, what is it? Chat Generative Pre-trained Transformer, or GPT for short, is a piece of software designed to mimic talking to a person. The difference is, this person is super clever, and it's been trained by thousands of conversations in the past, and it remembers them all. There are lots of chatbots out there. GPT is popular with young people as the answers it gives are not only correct, but can be slightly different each time, so it's more difficult for a teacher to spot a copy and paste homework. Let's put it to the test with a couple of school questions. I'm using a screen reader to represent ChatGPT to give it a voice. Responses are usually in text and appear as if they're being typed really quickly. I asked, what are the registers in a processor? And I got... Registers are a type of memory that is built into the central processing unit, CPU, of a computer. They are used to store data and instructions that the CPU needs to access quickly in order to perform its functions. There are different types of registers, each with a specific purpose. For example, the instruction register stores the current instruction that the CPU is executing, while the program counter register stores the address of the next instruction to be executed. I'll stop GPT there as three paragraphs were given in this answer, and it's only a one or two mark question. So I asked, can you tell me in two sentences? And I got... Registers are small, high-speed memory units built into the central processing unit, CPU, of a computer that are used to store data and instructions. They allow the CPU to access and manipulate data and instructions quickly, enabling it to carry out complex tasks at high speeds. Well, thank you, GPT. That's much more to the point. Powerful, right? How about, can you summarise Of Mice and Men? Of Mice and Men is a novella by John Steinbeck, published in 1937. It tells the story of George Milton and Lenny Small, two displaced migrant ranch workers during the Great Depression in California. Despite their apparent differences, the two men are deeply bonded and rely on each other for companionship and support. The novella ends tragically when Lenny, a simple-minded man with a love for soft things, accidentally kills a ranch owner's wife while trying to touch a soft dress, and George is forced to make the difficult decision to euthanize Lenny before he can be punished for the crime. That's fantastic. However, there's some words in there that are quite big, and my teacher would be quite suspicious that I copied and pasted it. So I'll ask, can you summarise Of Mice and Men simply? Of Mice and Men is a story about two ranch workers, George and Lenny, who are travelling together and looking for work during the Great Depression. Lenny is a large, simple-minded man with a love for soft things, and George is his caretaker and protector. Despite their differences, the two men are deeply bonded and rely on each other for companionship and support. However, their relationship is ultimately tested when Lenny accidentally kills a ranch owner's wife, and George is forced to make a difficult decision to protect Lenny from the consequences of his actions. 
that's more like it. Now my homework's done, I think I just bought myself some more time on my games console. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you very much, dear listeners, for uh, listening to this 27th podcast. It was a delight to share these thoughts with you on retrospective. What does a year of podcasting do to my general practice as a teacher? And also um, answering the question asked by one of my friends, should I consider joining the teaching profession? So my answer is yes, if you're equipped with all the understanding of what the job entails. And yes, if you're happy to deal with human behavior. And if you are aware that it's not an easy job, but it is still a rewarding job with highly transferable skills. What do you think about this? What are your views on teaching in 2023 in the UK? You can still join me on the chat function or on Twitter at profprofmfl. Meanwhile, I wish you a lovely evening, a great week, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with you next Sunday. Thank you very much. Goodbye and good evening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.